Hey, hey, folks, Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Please join us with you for uh, part two of chapter nine of Catch 22 by Joseph Heller. Major, 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 major. <laughs> So, um, for those of you who are longtime listeners uh, who have followed us from our 1984 days, uh, you might recall that there was a couple chapters in that book that were so large, uh, combined with our discussion, that we could not fit it all into one episode without I, I asking a lot of you. Even without our discussion, some of those chapters would have fit into the the rough format of our episode. And, and back then, uh, mainly because we had a large buffer, my thought was, well, as a listener, I don't want to, you know, have part of a chapter and wait a whole nother week for the next part of the chapter. So we had this idea that we would release, if, if a chapter was broken into parts, we would release them sequentially day after day after day to give a little bonus. Well, a few years removed from starting the podcast, a few books under our belt, a non-existent buffer now because of life. Life, um, and much life. Sadly, we made the decision last week when we had to break this chapter up. You know what? We're going to do one episode a week. Uh, we still get a good discussion. We still get some good reading. And hopefully that will be enough. Mm, 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 mm. And apologies to those who'd like to have all their chapters on one week. That's just not... No. Sorry. No. I so don't this, think... I don't think any of the other books we've read had multiple chapter episodes, did they? I want to say Brave New World, but I might be wrong. Hmm. We'll we'll look into it. So, folks, there's one thing that is happening between last episode and this episode, so you will find out. If you're having no problems listening to this episode, then you will have not been caught out by our transition. We are changing um, hosts. We're going from one host to another, which, of course, uh, we're going to make every effort to ensure that the links stay updated and everything works out fine. However, uh, we acknowledge that the the possibility of things going pear-shaped or slightly wonky exists, and so apologies if it took you a little bit longer to find this week's episode. Mm-mm. Yeah, as, as Rue said, yeah, we're, we, we're, I'd say, maybe 80% certain that things should be fine. But, you know, that's still, uh, I learned that back when I was big into Texas Hold'em. You, you'd think like 80%, oh, that's a sure bet, go in. And you're like, well, that's still a 20% chance that you could lose everything. And more often than not, you do. Yes. And we have we have everything backed up and all those things. It's just more the fact that our links will require, the RSS feed and all those things will potentially cause some hiccups and transition we're hoping it won't be the case but just yes as, as Dave put it there's a certain amount of uncertainty that we're, we're going to say 20 percent level of uncertainty that might cause issues but we're hoping it won't mm. so if you are listening in and you had no problems that brings us joy if you had difficulties we apologize um it is slightly out of our hands we are doing everything we can but yes well, let's let's move on with um, a <laughs> in question. In the meantime, 
poor major 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 yeah um we we only got through a short amount of the book last time but he's a very pitiable character Yes, and I mean, if you want to talk about someone who tries their best to control what they can control and it yet doesn't work out the way you would hope, mm. things going completely not the way they had hoped, major, 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 major comes his, to mind. His life is a pear shape. His Yes, his permanent pear shape. Pear, pear shape. Permanent pear shape. Actually, do we have to explain that? I know we we have many listeners all around the world. Uh, I don't know if that's like an Australian or English colloquialism. Uh, that's a good question. Pear-shaped is usually when you say something has turned out just falling out. Things okay. go bad. Things going bad is one thing, but also the shape of a pear is kind of narrow on the top and then broadens out on the bottom. Yes? Wobbly. Wobble, well, it's just wobbly. It just it gets a bit larger on the bottom, so it kind of spreads out. And usually, when things are meant to be, I guess, aligned and sorted and organized, you'd imagine the shape to be consistent throughout, such as a sphere or an oblong or mm. a rectangle. And yet, with a pear, it's a very confusing shape because it doesn't quite. It's like the bottom half's an apple and the top half's a cucumber. It's very confusing. Actually, yeah, that that's probably how the saying got started. People looked at a pear, maybe well high, and said, what's up with this shape? I'm also thinking it might have had to do with, with transport, but I'm going to look it up because I'm curious now and I want to know. Pear-shaped. We use these expressions and we don't always think what they mean, where they originate from. Well, l let me just go on a side while you're looking that up. Um, yeah. I'm dipping my toe back into Shakespeare. I'm rereading oh. Hamlet again. And one thing that uh, kind of went through my mind as I'm going through it is just, you've probably seen the memes where uh, it shows how many expressions and words that Shakespeare made up that are just common usage now in mm. our vernacular. And, and it links to, I'm reading a... Um, a book at the moment. Let me find the name of it, actually, because aspiring writers, I actually recommend this for anyone who wants to improve their writing skills. It's it's yes. one of those books, but they, they talk about how, as, a, as an author, you really should avoid cliches whenever you can, because cliches are like a, um, well, okay, if you're doing it purposefully, anything you do purposefully is permitted because you know what you're doing and you're using it for effect. But like we, they tend to be uh, crutches a lot of the time. Instead of thinking of an interesting way to put forth the idea, we kind of lean on the It becomes predictable. Old. It's predictable. If you follow a cliche, it becomes predictable. You don't want your writing to be predictable because then who would read it? Well, yes, I mean, that's the that's the thing. It just it, it it feels rote. It's like, what are you actually saying? We've heard all this before. Why are yeah. we reading you? Um, it's called Writing Tools by Roy Peter Clark. Hmm. And yeah, it's um, I'm about a third through it, and it, every chapter, author? every chapter is very small. It's like here's a tool, here here's uh, the explanation behind it, here's some examples, and here's some workshops if you want to mm. use use this in your own writing. And because it's called writing tools, he even says that in the introduction. It's like the, these are not writing edicts. It's like you know, don't mm. use these all the time. Always, it, this is. This is for your toolbox, so you know these things. And then if you want to go against them, again, I, I think that's what he stresses. And it's an idea I like to remind myself of no matter what I do, is that if things are done with purpose, 
then that's a lot more palatable than if you just kind of always be aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it to to the best of your ability be a conscious be conscious of your conscious yes yeah um there's so you're gonna laugh okay so the much aligned pair To go pear-shaped means to go wrong or to fail miserably or to go awry in a terrible fashion. To go pear-shaped may describe a situation in which finances suffer a sudden and catastrophic reversal or personal relationship takes a sudden and calamitous turn. The origin of the expression to go pear-shaped is in dispute. Some believe that the idiomatic phrase came into use in the 1980s, but others trace the phrase to the 1940s which is appropriate and topical. And we're going to go for the purposes of this podcast with the 1940s example. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. That's, uh, that, that, that's serendipitous. Yes, it is. They believe that the term originated with the Royal Air Force to describe pilots' poor execution of loops in the air, ending up with pear shapes rather than a round shape. Primarily a British phrase for many years, the idiom to go pear-shaped is being used more and more in North America, especially when describing economic or business downturns. So yes, not and not only probably, is it a World War Two uh, yes uh, phrase, it's used in the it came from the Air Force. I know it's it's <laughs> extremely appropriate. That's why I was like, this is hilarious to me. Wow. Yep, and and uh, on top of that, it just just to make sure our dear listeners know how to to spell it. Not that it's really important, but pear shaped has to have a hyphen in it for it to be referring to this very idiom. Otherwise, it it's different otherwise i guess it's 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 the person is like a bowling pin yeah is yeah is a pear-shaped person it's a bit different um this is from grammarist so it's it's a relatively reliable site it's not a bad one and they're not sticking to either justification so they're going it's either from this origin or that origin but we think i mean for the purposes of our podcast it's from it's world it's 1940s and it's all to do with the air force that's our explanation (laughs) And I want to go on the record right now that I think pears are delicious. Pears can be great, except if you're allergic, but they can be great. Although nothing quite like the nashi. The nashi pear is really lovely. <sighs> I don't know if I've had one. I have whatever the kind of small green ones are that you, we find in our supermarket a lot. So and- nashi pears are the, they kind of feel like a blend towards an apple and a pear. They are, I think, possibly a form of asiatic pear uh, they're quite nice that that's the other thing that's um still kind of fascinates me you know mm. just yeah to t- take a pear or take an apple maybe the most basic of the fruit or the one that most people around the world actually know because then if you go to parts of asia it's like mangoes are supreme everywhere that being uh, said apples are i think a fairly universal fruit but yes but but just just like you know the apples where i grew up in the u.s uh i've never been able to have anything like them over yeah. here and we got our own very uh, unique blend of apples and you're talking about different pears yeah it's just um fruit is very regional hmm. and hmm. while we do have the ability to ship fruit across yes the sea. it doesn't it doesn't um, it's, it, not it's as nice. uh it's going to be different in every place you go especially yeah. if if you go to like a farmer's market and you you try mm. and sample the local produce which yeah. is it's funny technically it should be better but every time i buy from one of those markets the fruit ends up being terrible 
Yeah, it depends on depends on the fruit. Some fruit are good locally in Australia, especially where we are. Is some are really good, and then others are just not for this region, and they don't. They have to be transported in, or like they don't last very well. By the way, the the nashi pear is also known as the Asian pear, Japanese pear, Chinese pear, Korean pear, Taiwanese pear, apple pear, zodiac pear, uh, three halves pear, papple, and sand pear. Papple. Many names. <laughs> Because it's a pear apple, apple. But mm. it's it is we just I mean in Australia you'll buy it as a nashi pear, and it's quite fresh. And it's interesting that all of the all of the East Asian countries have just gone. Oh, it's our pear. <laughs> it's like um, it's it's a pear. Well, you know, e- even among that type of pear, it probably is a bit different in each one of those countries. Mm. It would be subtly different in every country, but it, I know it a lot from Korean cooking because it's, it's often used as their fruit to make things slightly sweet, like sweet and sour. Those kind of dishes will generally have the pear or in some form in it. So, yes, that was a lot about pears, and we got distracted from major, 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 major. The major. podcast went pear shape? Yeah, literally. <laughs> but, I mean... So we had major, major, major. I mean, it was relevant because we had a farmer. So major, 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 major. An alfalfa major farmer is is uh, whose father is an alfalfa farmer who who earns, who gets money from the government for alfalfa he hasn't grown. So he makes sure to grow less, even less alfalfa, so that he can get paid more. He buys more land. And, he yeah. buys more more land to not grow alfalfa, for which. He is then reimbursed or compensated by the government. Yep. Is he an anti-falfa? Anti-alfalfa? No falfa? No falfa at all. Exactly. Oh, it's, it's bad. You know, I don't know how I'd feel about alfalfa today, but when I was younger, I didn't like any sprouts. I can understand. it. They, they, they can have a bit of an aftertaste depending on the type. Mung bean sprouts are very nice, though, in a salad or a rice. But yes. Well, we will move away from food. I think <laughs> we're a little bit... It's because I started with pear-shaped, and I apologize for starting us in that direction. Well, I have no idea why I should be hungry. I went out and had like a, a glutton's breakfast. So that's how I referred to it when I told Rue. And like my stomach's still going, don't you dare even think about putting anything in me, even all these hours removed. And yet we're talking about fruit and my mouth is water. <laughs> yes, fair. <laughs> Uh yes, and and we have now uh, the continuation of nine. Yeah, oh, um, we'll see how far we uh, get into yes, chapter get. nine today. I want to uh, blame. We can't promise that we'll finish it, but we'll do our darndest. Yes, yes, we will. Poor major, 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 major. We pity him, but everyone else seems to just. Now, um, to to catch uh, folks up, the last thing we talked about was that. Uh, even with all his problems, Major Major did not want to disturb the chaplain because he felt, as a squadron commander, that wasn't his place to go to the chaplain. And then he thought, well, the chaplain's probably got enough problems of his own. Mm. And so he probably needs to be talking to the chaplain, and yet won't. But it also it also kind of foreshadows. We've only met the chaplain briefly back in Chapter 1. The Assyrians mm. are quite a liking to him. But... Uh, I'm imagining that we will probably find out what those problems are once we have a chapter dedicated to him. Well, I think he's very earnest and he means well, but doesn't know what to <laughs> do. That's not going to do well in this outfit. No, no, no. Okay, so 
He had never been quite sure about Major de Coverley either, who, when he was not away renting apartments or kidnapping foreign laborers, had nothing more pressing to do than pitch horseshoes. Major Major often paid strict attention to the horseshoes falling softly against the earth or riding down around the small steel pegs in the ground. He peeked out at Major de Coverley for hours and marveled that someone so august had nothing more important to do. He was often tempted to join Major de Coverley, but pitching horseshoes all day long seemed almost as dull as signing Major 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 to official documents, and Major de Coverley's countenance was so forbidding that Major Major was in awe of approaching him. Major Major wondered about his relationship to Major de Coverley and about Major de Coverley's relationship to him. He knew that Major de Coverley was his executive officer, but he did not know what that meant, and he could not decide whether in Major de Coverley he was blessed with a lenient superior or cursed with a delinquent subordinate. He did not want to ask Sergeant Towser, of whom he was secretly afraid, and there was no one else he could ask, least of all Major de Coverley. Few people ever dared approach Major de Coverley about anything, and the only officer foolish enough to pitch one of his horseshoes was stricken the very next day with the worst case of pianist and crud that Gus or Wes or even Doctonica had ever seen or even heard about. Everyone was positive the disease had been inflicted upon the poor officer in retribution by Major de Coverley, although no one was sure how. Most of the official documents that came to Major Major's desk did not concern him at all. The vast majority consisted of allusions to prior communications which Major Major had never seen or heard of. There was never any need to look them up, for the instructions were invariably to disregard. Disregard memo regarding da 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 Okay, yeah, sure. Great, nice. Next. Please regard to disregard. Yes. In the space of a single productive minute, therefore, he might endorse 20 separate documents, each advising him to pay absolutely no attention to any of the others. <laughs> Rouge's face palmed. <laughs> Anyone who's on academic uh, mailing lists understands this too well. <laughs> From oh. General Peckham's office on the mainland came prolix bulletins each day headed by such cheery homilies as procrastination is the thief of time and cleanliness is next to godliness that that's the guy i was thinking of i remember we were talking about colonel cathcart i'm like was that the guy who was at war with general dreidel but no cathcart works for general peckham who is the guy at war with general dreidel general peckham's communications about cleanliness and procrastination made major major feel like a filthy procrastinator and he always got those out of the way as quickly as he could. The only official documents that interested him were those occasional ones pertaining to the unfortunate second lieutenant who had been killed on the mission over Orvieto less than two hours after he arrived on Pianosa, and whose partly unpacked belongings were uh. still in Yesarian's tent. Since the unfortunate lieutenant had reported to the operations tent instead of to the orderly room, Sergeant Towser had decided that it would be safest to report him as never having reported to the squadron at all, and the occasional documents relating to him dealt with the fact that he seemed to have vanished into thin air, which in one way was exactly what had happened to him. So, remember when we were discussing about the dead man in Yusarian's tent? Yeah, so his belongings are all there. 
But it it feels like, or at least it sounds like, they also stuck him in there. No, it's it's so okay. Uh, he'd been killed on the mission over Orvieto, right? Mm. I don't rem- I don't remember what happened in that mission. If we've uh, they no no that we haven't really talked about that one. The one where the other man was killed was in Avignon. Avignon. And I was never... Avignon where there was another plane that, that did yeah, get yeah. blown up? Okay. That, so... That's the one we got the flashback uh, with, um, what's his name, Alfie being a twat. Yes. So we don't know what's happening with Orvieto, but his things are in Yossarian's tent. And because he, the unfortunate lieutenant reported to operations tent instead of the orderly room, so he should have reported to orderlies instead of the operations tent. Then, then his things are there, but he was—he never technically checked in, as far as Sergeant Towser is concerned, because he didn't check into the place he was meant to check in. So the idea of a dead man might be metaphorical, then, because his things are in Yossarian's tent. I think his things are there, but he himself is not necessarily there. I hope not. But wasn't the thing about Havermeyer took the gun from the dead man? That's yes. So all his stuff was there. That's true. His gun was yeah, yeah. Yeah, all his stuff was there, but he obviously wasn't although you'd think he would have had his gun on him if he was killed in action Mm. unless he was killed in action they buried him and they just kind of went well all his stuff's there but he didn't actually check in where he needed to check in so (laughs) it's odd i mean look the way this book is written it would not surprise me if there really is a dead man lying in yasarian's tent yeah except They'd be a lot sicker if there was. Yes. Yes. So, mm, well, I we'll probably find out uh, as more is colored in. Yes. Yes. In the long run, Major Major was grateful for the official documents that came to his desk. For sitting in his office signing them all day long was a lot better than sitting in his office all day long not signing them. <laughs> they gave him something to do. Inevitably, every document he signed came back with a fresh page added for a new signature by him after intervals of from two to ten days. They were always much thicker than formerly, for in between the sheet bearing his last endorsement and the sheet added for his new endorsement were the sheets bearing the most recent endorsements of all the other officers in scattered locations who were also occupied in signing their names to that same official document. Oh, wow. Major Major grew despondent as he watched simple communications swell prodigiously into huge manuscripts. No matter how many tries he signed one, it always came back for still another signature, and he began to despair of ever being free of any of them. One day, it was the day after the CID man's first visit, Major Major signed Washington Irving's name to one of the documents instead of his own, just to see how it would feel. He liked it. He liked it so much that for the rest of that afternoon, he did the same with all the official documents. It was an act of impulsive frivolity and rebellion for which he knew afterward he would be punished severely. The next morning, he entered his office in trepidation and waited to see what would happen. Nothing happened. He had sinned, and it was good, for none of the documents to which he had signed Washington Irving's name ever came back. Here at last was progress, and Major Major threw himself into his new career with uninhabited gusto. Signing Washington Irving's name to official documents was not much of a career, perhaps, but it was less monotonous than signing Major Major Major. 
When Washington Irving did grow monotonous, he could reverse the order and sign Irving Washington <laughs> until that grew monotonous, and he was getting something done, for none of the documents signed with either of these names ever came back to the squadron. What did come back eventually was a second CID man masquerading as a pilot. The men knew he was a CID man because he confided to them he was and urged each of them not to reveal his true identity to any of the other men to whom he had already confided that he was a CID man. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna say he's not a very good CID man. You're the only one in the squadron who knows I'm a CID man, he confided to Major Major, and it's absolutely essential that it remain a secret so that my efficiency won't be impaired. Do you understand? Sergeant Towser knows. Yes, I know. I had to tell him in order to get in to see you, but I know he won't tell a soul under any circumstance. He told me, said Major Major. He told me there was a CID man outside to see me. That bastard. I'll have to throw a security check on him. I wouldn't leave any top-secret documents lying around here if I were you, at least not until I make my report. I don't get any top-secret documents, said Major Major. That's the kind I mean. Lock them in your cabinet where Sergeant Towser can't get his hands on them. No, Sergeant... it's like the... Don't tell anyone about it. Tell about what? Exactly. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Sergeant Towser has the only key to the cabinet. I'm afraid we're wasting time, said the second CID man rather stiffly. He was a brisk, pudgy, high-strung person whose movements were swift and certain. He took a number of photostats out of a large red expansion envelope he had been hiding conspicuously beneath a leather flight jacket painted garishly with pictures of airplanes flying through orange bursts of flak and with orderly rows of little bombs signifying 55 combat missions flown. Have you ever seen any of these? Major Major looked with a blank expression at copies of personal correspondence from the hospital on which the censoring officer had written Washington Irving or Irving Washington. No. How about these? Major Major gazed next at copies of official documents addressed to him to which he had been signing the same signatures. No. Is the man who signed these names in your squadron? Which one? There are two names here. Either one. We figure that Washington Irving and Irving Washington are one man and that he's using two names just to throw us off the track. Wow, but... they're clever. <laughs> That's done very often, you know. I don't think there's a man with either of those names in my squadron. A look of disappointment crossed the second CID man's face. He's a lot cleverer than we thought, he observed. He's using a third name and posing as someone else. And I think, yes, I think I know what that third name is. With excitement and inspiration, he held another photostat out for Major Major to study. How about this? Major Major bent forward slightly and saw a copy of the piece of V-mail from which Yasarian had blacked out everything but the name Mary and on which he had written, I yearn for you tragically, R.O. Shipman Chaplain, U.S. Army. Major Major shook his head. I've never seen it before. Do you know who R.O. Shipman is? He's the group chaplain. That locks it up said the second CID man. Washington Irving is the group chaplain. Major Major felt a twinge of alarm. R.O. Shipman is the group chaplain, he corrected. Are you sure? Yes. Why should the group chaplain write this on a letter? Perhaps somebody else wrote it and forged his name. Why should somebody want to forge the group chaplain's name? To escape detection. You may be right, the second CID man decided after an instant's hesitation and smacked his lips crisply. 
maybe we're confronted with a gang with two men working together who just happen to have opposite names. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's it. One of them here in the squadron, one of them up at the hospital, and one of them with the chaplain. That makes three men, doesn't it? Are you absolutely sure you never saw any of these official documents before? I would have signed them if I had. With whose name? asked the second CID man cunningly. Yours or Washington Irving's? With my own name, Major Major told him. I don't even know Washington Irving's name. The second CID man because, broke into... Well, yeah, he doesn't know Washington Irving's name because he doesn't know who... It, yeah, no. <clears throat> the mm. second CID man broke into a smile. Major, I'm glad you're in the clear. It means we'll be able to work together, and I'm going to need every man I can get. Somewhere in the European theater of operations is a man who's getting his hands on communications addressed to you. Have you any idea who it could be? No. Well, I have a pretty good idea, said the second CID man, and leaned forward to whisper confidentially. That bastard Towser. Why else would he go around shooting his mouth off about me? Now you keep your eyes open and let me know the minute you hear anyone even talking about Washington Irving. I'll throw a security check on the chaplain and everyone else around here. The moment he was gone, the first CID man jumped into Major Major's office through the window and wanted to know who the second CID man was. Major Major barely recognized him. He was a CID man, Major Major told him. Like hell he was, said the first CID man. I'm the CID man around here. Major Major barely recognized him because he was wearing a faded maroon corduroy bathrobe with open seams under both arms, linty flannel pajamas, and worn house slippers with one flapping sole. This was regulation hospital dress, Major Major recalled. The man had added about 20 pounds and seemed bursting with good health. I'm really a very sick man, he whined. I caught cold in the hospital from a fighter pilot and came down with a very serious case of pneumonia. I'm very sorry, Major Major said. A lot of good that does me, the CID man sniffled. I don't want your sympathy. I just want you to know what I'm going through. I came down to warn you that Washington Irving seems to have shifted his base of operations from the hospital to your squadron. You haven't heard anyone around here talking about Washington Irving, have you? As a matter of fact, I have, Major Major answered. That man who was just in here, he was talking about Washington Irving. Was he really? The first CID man cried with delight. This might be just what we needed to crack the case wide open. You keep him under surveillance 24 hours a day while I rush back to the hospital and write my superiors for further instructions. The CID man jumped out of Major Major's office through the window and was gone. I was like, so, how, so we've got two CID man, men. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the one in the hospital. Yep. Who was there because Yasserian was signing... Yeah, Washington so there was one who came in because of the hospital signing. Then you have these two two more coming in. No, no, no. The, the guy who just jumped in the window is the hospital guy. Yeah, he's the hospital one. But then there's other ones coming in because Major Major is signing Washington. Well, just the right? other one. The okay, one so that there's came two. In so there's two of them. One just, okay, yeah. Now yeah, yeah. So, so the second one came in because either the they one. couldn't find him or because Major Major was now signing the name. They thought they needed another man on the case. That's so funny. And now I I can see where this is going. The the first one is suspicious of the second one. That's so funny. <laughs> a minute later, the flap separating Major Major's office from the orderly room flew open and the second CID man was back, puffing frantically in haste, gasping for breath. He shouted, I just saw a man in red pajamas jumping out of your window and go running up the road. Didn't you see him? 
He was here talking to me, Major Major answered. I thought that looked mighty suspicious, a man jumping out the window in red pajamas. The man paced about the small office in vigorous circles. At first, I thought it was you, hightailing it from Mexico, but now I see it wasn't you. He didn't say anything about Washington Irving, did he? As a matter of fact, said Major Major, he did. He did, cried the second CID man. That's fine. This might just be the break we needed to crack the case wide open. Do you know where we can find him? At the hospital. He's really a very sick man. That's great, exclaimed the second CID man. I'll go right up there after him. It would be best if I went incognito. I'll go explain the situation at the medical tent and have them send me there as a patient. They won't send me to the hospital as a patient unless I'm sick, he reported back to Major Major. Actually, I am pretty sick. I've been meaning to turn myself in for a checkup, and this will be a good opportunity. I'll go back to the medical tent and tell them I'm sick, and I'll get sent to the hospital that way. Look what they did to me, he reported back to Major Major with purple gums. His distress was inconsolable. He carried his shoes and socks in his hands, and his toes had been painted with gentian violet solution. Who ever heard of a CID man with purple gums, he moaned. He walked away from the orderly room with his head down and tumbled into a slit trench and broke his nose. His temperature was still normal, but Gus and Wes made an exception of him and sent him to the hospital in an ambulance. Major Major had lied, and it was good. He was not really surprised that it was good, for he had observed that people who did lie were, on the whole, more resourceful and ambitious and successful than people who did not lie. Like his dad. Had he told the truth to the second CID man, he would have found himself in trouble. Instead, he had lied, and he was free to continue his work. You know, uh, Washington Irving wasn't major, 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 uh, English lit major? American lit. American lit. That's funny, because the Washington Irving is an American literature author. Ah, maybe that's why when he saw, because he obviously would have got this um, idea from the Assyrian, even though he didn't know it was the Assyrian doing it. Mm. Or from the CID man who went, obviously my guess is that the CID man to get sent to the hospital had to come talk to Major Major first. Mm. Why he was there, he's like, there's someone in the hospital signing Washington Irving's name and I want to put a stop to it. And then one day Major Major is like, what if I send these... Uh, <laughs> These letters, uh, Washington Irving. It's apparently considered the father of American literature. Huh. Wrote the Le Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Rip Van Winkle, The Devil and Tom Walker, and Kid the Pirate, and Adventures of the German Student. I don't know, the, those ones are less less famous than Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van mm. Winkle. But yes, interesting. So that's funny. That would have maybe tickled his um, sense of humor. If he has now, uh, and this is not to be too mean to Major Major, but do you think he has a sense of humor? I think he... Yeah, it's a good question. I think he has more than Clevenger does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think he's a little bit... Uh, yeah, he's a bit vulnerable to not be... Mind, mind you, I personal. don't think Yossarian has much of, a, much of a sense of humor either. I don't know if he does. I think all of them are kind of struggling with humor. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But yes. Poor, poor people. He became more circumspect in his work as a result of the visit from the second CID man. He did all his signing with his left hand and only while wearing the dark glasses and false mustache he had used unsuccessfully to help him begin playing basketball again. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> major, major, who's that? My name is Sergeant Sergeant. Uh, as an additional precaution, he made a happy switch from Washington Irving to John Milton. Ah, yeah, there's another author. Mm. John Milton was supple and concise. Like Washington Irving, he could be reversed with good effect whenever he grew monotonous. Furthermore, he enabled Major Major to double his output, for John Milton was so much shorter than either his own name or Washington Irving's and took so much less time to write. John Milton proved fruitful in still one more respect. He was versatile and Major Major soon found himself incorporating the signature in fragments of imaginary dialogues. Thus, typical endorsements on the official documents might read, John, Milton is a sadist, or have you seen Milton, John? One signature of which he was especially proud read, is anybody in the John Milton? John Milton drew open whole new vistas filled with charming, inexhaustible possibilities that promised to ward off monotony forever. Major Major went back to Washington Irving when John Milton grew monotonous. <laughs> the, the possibilities are endless. Well, I'm bored now. <laughs> Major Major had bought the dark glasses and false mustache in Rome in a final futile attempt to save himself from the swampy degradation in which he was steadily sinking. First, there had been the awful humiliation of the Great Loyalty Oath Crusade when not one of the 30 or 40 people circulating competitive loyalty oaths would even allow him to sign. Then, just when that was blowing over, there was the matter of Clevenger's plane disappearing so mysteriously in thin air with every member of the crew and blame for the strange mishap centering balefully on him because he had never signed any of the loyalty oaths. Okay, Clevenger's plane disappeared? With everyone on board. Wow. The dark glasses had large magenta rims. The false black mustache was a flamboyant organ grinder's, and he wore them both to the basketball game one day when he felt he could endure his loneliness no longer. He affected an air of jaunty familiarity as he sauntered to the court and prayed silently that he would not be recognized. The others pretended not to recognize him, and he began to have fun. Just as he finished congratulating himself on his innocent ruse, he was bumped hard by one of his opponents and knocked to his knees. Soon he was bumped hard again, and it dawned on him that they did recognize him, and that they were using his disguise as a license to elbow, trip, and maul him. They did not want him at all, and just as he did realize this, the players on his team fused instinctively with the players on the other team into a single, howling, bloodthirsty mob that descended upon him from all sides with foul curses and swinging fists. They knocked him to the ground, kicked him while he was on the ground, attacked him again after he had struggled blindly to his feet. He covered his face with his hands and could not see. They swarmed all over each other in their frenzied compulsion to bludgeon him, kick him, gouge him, trample him. He was pummeled, spinning to the edge of the ditch, and sent slithering down on his head and shoulders. At the bottom, he found his footing, clambered up the other wall, and staggered away beneath the hail of hoots and stones with which they pelted him until he lurched into shelter around the corner of the orderly room tent. His mm. paramount concern throughout the entire assault was to keep his dark glasses and false mustache in place so that he might continue pretending he was somebody else and be spared the dreaded necessity of having to confront them with his authority. Back in his office, he wept, and when he finished weeping, he washed the blood from his mouth and nose, scrubbed the dirt from the abrasions on his cheek and forehead, and summoned Sergeant Towser. 
From now on, he said, I don't want anyone to come in to see me while I'm here. Is that clear? Yes, sir, said Sergeant Towser. Does that include me? Yes, I see. Will that be all? Yes. What shall I say to the people who do come to see you while you're here? Tell them I'm in and ask them to wait. Yes, sir. For how long? Until I've left. And then what shall I do with them? I don't care. May I send them in to see you after you've left? Yes. But you won't be here then, will you? No. Yes, sir. Will that be all? Yes. Yes, sir. From now on, Major Major said to the middle-aged enlisted man who took care of his trailer, I don't want you to come here while I'm here to ask me if there's anything you can do for me. Is that clear? Yes, sir, said the orderly. When should I come here to find out if there's anything you want me to do for you? When I'm not here. Yes, sir, and what should I do? Whatever I tell you to. But you won't be here to tell me, will you? No. Then what should I do? Whatever has to be done. Yes, sir. That will be all, said Major Major. Yes, sir, said the orderly. Will that be all? No, said Major Major. Don't come in to clean either. Don't come in for anything unless you're sure I'm not here. Yes, sir. But how can I always be sure? If you're not sure, just assume that I am here and go away until you are sure. Is that clear? Yes, sir. I'm sorry I have to talk to you in this way, but I have to. Goodbye. Goodbye, sir, and thank you for everything. Yes, sir. From now on, Major Major said to Milo Minderbinder, I'm not going to come to the mess hall anymore. I'll have all my meals brought to me in my trailer. I think that's a good idea, sir, Milo answered. Now I'll be able to serve you special dishes that the others will never know about. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. Colonel Cathcart always does. I don't want any special dishes. I want exactly what you serve all the other officers. Just have whoever brings it knock once on my door and leave the tray on the step. Is that clear? Yes, sir, said Milo. That's very clear. I've got some live Maine lobsters hidden away that I can serve you tonight with an excellent Roquefort salad and two frozen eclairs that were smuggled out of Paris only yesterday, together with an important member of the French underground. Will that do for a start? No. Yes, sir. I understand. For dinner that night, Milo served a broiled Maine lobster with excellent Roquefort salad and two frozen eclairs. Milo's Major, Major. Just not the... Just Milo. Yeah. <laughs> Major, Major can't get any respect. No. Major Major was annoyed. If he sent it back, though, it would only go to waste or to somebody else, and Major Major had a weakness for broiled lobster. He ate with a guilty conscience. The next day for lunch, there was Terrapin Maryland with a whole quart of Dom Perignon 1937, and Major Major gulped it down without a thought. After Milo, there remained only the men in the orderly room, and Major Major avoided them by entering and leaving every time through the dingy celluloid window of his office. The window unbuttoned and was low and large and easy to jump through from either side. He managed the distance between the orderly room and his trailer by darting around the corner of the tent when the coast was clear, leaping down into the railroad ditch and dashing along with head bowed until he attained the sanctuary of the forest. Abreast of his trailer, he left the ditch and wove his way speedily toward home through the dense underbrush in which the only person he ever encountered was Captain Flume, who drawn and ghostly, frightened him half to death one twilight by materializing without warning out of a patch of dewberry bushes to complain that Chief White Halfout had threatened to slit his throat open from ear to ear. If you ever frighten me like that again, Major Major told him, I'll slit your throat open from ear to ear. Captain Flume gasped and dissolved right back into the patch of dewberry bushes, and Major Major never sat eyes on him again. So Captain Flume is the one that Captain White Half Oat likes to torture, who lives with Hungry Joe. 
No, no, Flume's the one that shares the tent with half out. No, no, that's, um, what's his name? Because uh, Black is the one with um, Hungry Joe. Oh, you're right. But who's, no, who was with half, Chief Half Whiteout? It was, um... Dr. Nika. Dr. Nika. Uh, well, he moved to Dr. Nika's tent. He was moved there, but he did oh, yeah. share it with... And then Captain half Flume out. died. Did he? Yes. Because he used to be the captain for... Um, it's hard, hard to describe. It's so hard keeping the whole thing in your head, isn't it? Yeah. I think he died. <laughs> Help us out, folks. Uh, when Major Major looked back on what he had accomplished, he was pleased. In the midst of a few foreign acres teeming with more than 200 people, he had succeeded in becoming a recluse. With a little ingenuity and vision, he had made it all but impossible for anyone in the squadron to talk to him which was just fine with everyone, he noticed, since no one wanted to talk to him anyway. No one, it turned out, but that madman Yasarian, who brought him down with a flying tackle one day as he was scooting along the bottom of the ditch to his trailer for lunch. The last person in the squadron Major Major wanted to be brought down with a flying tackle by was Yasarian. There was something inherently disreputable about Yasarian, always carrying on so disgracefully about that dead man in his tent, who wasn't even there, and then taking off all his clothes after the Avignon mission and going around without them right up to the day General Dredel stepped up to pin a medal on him for his heroism over Ferreira and found him standing in formation stark naked. No one in the world had the power to remove the dead man's disorganized effects from Yasarian's tent. Major Major had forfeited the authority when he permitted Sergeant Towser to report the lieutenant who had been killed over Orvieto less than two hours after he arrived in the squadron as never having arrived in the squadron at all. The only one with any right to remove his belongings from Yasarian's tent, it seemed to Major Major, was Yasarian himself, and Yasarian, it seemed to Major Major, had no right. Major Major groaned after Yasarian brought him down with a flying tackle and tried to wiggle to his feet. Yasarian wouldn't let him. Captain Yasarian, Yasarian said, requests permission to speak to the Major at once about a matter of life or death. Let me up, please, Major Major bid him in cranky discomfort. I can't return your salute while I'm lying on my arm. Yasarian released him. They stood up slowly. Yasarian saluted again and repeated his request. Let's go to my office, Major Major said. I don't think this is the best place to talk. Yes, sir, answered Yasarian. They smacked the gravel from their clothing and walked in constrained silence to the entrance of the orderly room. Give me a minute or two to put some mercurochrome on these cuts. Then have Sergeant Towser send you in. (laughs) 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 Yes, sir. Major Major strode with dignity to the rear of the orderly room without glancing at any of the clerks and typists working at the desks and filing cabinets. He let the flap leading to his office fall closed behind him. As soon as he was alone in his office, he raced across the room to the window and jumped outside to dash away. He found Yasarian blocking his path. Yasarian was waiting at attention and saluted again. Captain Yasarian requests permission to speak to the Major at once about a matter of life or death. He repeated determinately. Permission denied, Major Major snapped. That won't do it. Major Major gave in. All right, he conceded warily. I'll talk to you. Please jump inside my office. (laughs) After you, they jumped inside the office. Major Major sat down, and Yasarian moved around in front of his desk and told him that he did not want to fly any more combat missions. What could he do? Major Major asked himself. 
All he could do was what he had been instructed to do by Colonel Corn and hope for the best. Hmm. Why not? he asked. I'm afraid. That's nothing to be ashamed of, Major Major consoled him kindly. We're all afraid. I'm not ashamed, the Assyrian said. I'm just afraid. You wouldn't be normal if you were never afraid. Even the bravest men experience fear. One of the biggest jobs we all face in combat is to overcome our fear. Oh, come on, Major. Can't we do without that horse shit? Major Major lowered his gaze sheepishly and fiddled with his fingers. What do you want me to tell you? That I've flown enough missions and can go home. How many have you flown? Fifty-one. You've only got four more to fly. He'll raise them. Every time I get close, he raises them. Perhaps he won't this time. He never sends anyone home anyway. He just keeps them around waiting for rotation orders until he doesn't have enough men left for the cruise and then raises the number of missions and throws them all back on combat status. He's been doing that ever since he got here. You mustn't blame Colonel Cathcart for any delay with the orders, Major Major advised. It's 27th Air Force's responsibility to process the orders promptly once they get them from us. He could still ask for replacements and send us home when the orders did come back. Anyway, I've been told that 27th Air Force wants only 40 missions and that it's only his own idea to get us to fly 55. I wouldn't know anything about that, Major Major answered. Colonel Cathcart is our commanding officer and we must obey him. Why don't you fly the four more missions and see what happens? I don't want to. What could you do? Major Major asked himself again. What could you do with a man who looked you squarely in the eye and said he would rather die than be killed in combat? A man who was at least as mature and intelligent as you were and who you had to pretend was not. What could you say to him? Suppose we let you pick your missions and fly milk runs, Major Major said. That way you can fly the four missions and not run any risks. I don't want to fly milk runs. I don't want to be in the war anymore. Would you like to see our country lose? Major Major asked. We won't lose. We've got more men, more money, and more material. There are 10 million men in uniform who could replace me. Some people are getting killed, and a lot more are making money and having fun. Let somebody else get killed. But suppose everybody on our side felt that way. Then I'd certainly be a damned fool to feel any other way, wouldn't I? What could you possibly say to him? Major Major wondered forlornly. One thing he could not say was that there was nothing he could do. To say there was nothing he could do would to suggest he would do something if he could, and imply the existence of an error of injustice in Colonel Corn's policy. Colonel Corn had been most explicit about that. He must never say there was nothing he could do. I'm sorry, he said, but there's nothing I can do. Wow. And hey, we got through. Woo! Yeah, it's a bit of a... Um... It's complex, as we know before. And it's interesting. I think the people, like the men broke him. Like... Um, they just broke. They broke major, 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 major. I don't know. Major, major to the power four. Major. You could just say major, major. Ma many majors. Major, major. He's been. Um, yeah. The system broke him. He wanted to connect. He wanted to make friends and wanted all these things. And now he's like. Well, remember he only entered the army and then the air force based on other people's suggestions yeah, well and the that, computer well no that that's what got him to major i oh, yeah, that's what but, got him to but major no I, it was some like senator who you know thought he was an intellectual so it's like what do we do with this guy well let's have him join the army let's suggest he joins the air force that gets him out of our hair because i think he wanted to, his father wanted to be a politician 
Well, there was that also thing because, you know, he was at uni and he started studying American literature. So suddenly the FBI were all watching him and like had six men in his share house. That's because he studied. He studied literature. And then they're like, why are you studying English literature? You should study American literature. Like, But only a commie would study literature. Yeah. Only a study. No, a commie would study English literature. (laughs) It's like. "Mm." Yeah. Poor major, 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 major. And infinite measures. And there was a, I like there was that moment of, because he still has his humanity, that that bit at the end when he's, look, Yasarian's right in front of him and he's going through his mind. He's like, nothing Yasarian is saying is wrong. In fact, he's completely right. And I'd be a heel if I, if I didn't try and help him, but I can't do anything. No, because as soon as he tries to do anything, he also gets into trouble. Well, and I think just the way it's set up, there's nothing he can do, no, even though he he's not supposed to say there's nothing he, he can do. do. But it's because the orders, it, it's depend. Yeah. he's dependent on the orders and, and uh, he's catch 22. He's catch, all of them are, they're all mm-hmm. catch 22. It stinks. Uh, yeah. Futility of war is definitely coming through in this one. And also the frustration because of the human cost, just not, not only death, but just it breaks people. Well, I, I love that exchange with the Assyrian. He's like, do you want us to lose the war? And he's like, we won't lose. Look, we've got so much more money, resources, and men um, than the enemy. And if I were to leave, there'd be there'd be millions of other men who could take my place. Why should I have to die? Yeah. And I mean, that is a selfish thought, but we're talking about life and death here. Mm. Far out. Like, it's a mess a mess i just i just look at it and, and then i love how uh my my love my mind bender just mind binder just yeah i understand nudge nudge wink wink say no 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 i just i just want what everyone else is eating oh yeah 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 i get it i get it i know what you want i want what you want it's like no you don't know anything <laughs> and, and then finally after the second day he's like well i don't want this to go to waste i've got a weakness for a lobster and then suddenly it's, it's just fine, it's okay fine. But remember, Milo thinks that if you scratch someone else's back, you get it like same kind of way that mm-hmm. that um, the doctor thinks, except that he doesn't check that he's going to actually have an outcome. Yeah, because my- Milo has no mind for business. No, no, he doesn't, and he thinks he's really clever. Like, and Major Major doesn't have any power at all. And it, it's funny after the basketball game, or maybe it was a little before then, but he went from "I want to make friends" to suddenly "I don't want." to see anyone no it was after the basketball game because they all they because he realized they recognized him and they took that as an opportunity to hurt him and the reason they hurt him is because he just kind of blandly has to just sign off orders so everything goes onto his head like it's his fault but he can't actually control anything and he doesn't and 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 the sad part is we've learned that he really doesn't sign well he he does nothing of import nothing no. the stuff that goes on his desk that he has to sign is, is it means nothing because it goes around everyone and then just comes back to him yeah and only when he signs the fake names that something happens they don't come back because <laughs> cid suddenly involved going who is this person i wonder if we're going to get more from the cid men who are now investigating oh, each other guaranteed <laughs> I think what's going to happen is one of the CID men is going to shoot the other CID man or or charge them or it's going to be a mess. 
It's going to be hilarious. But it'll so be so nice. we also learned two things that we'll most likely find out about in the future. We learned that Clevenger went missing. Well, Clevenger and a plane full of people went missing. Yeah. And Yasarian um, got a medal for surviving an attack at Ferrara. At the, and at that point, he was walking around naked for some reason. Well, I mean, arguably, it'd be a good way to get a Section 8 if they actually listened to him. But he did it for a week until he got the medal, I guess, pinned on him. Yeah, maybe that stopped him. Yeah. <laughs> Although, chest hair, it's doable, depending depending on the fuzz. Yes, yes. And, and we did learn, you're right, The um, the um the it wasn't a literal man dead in his tent. Major Major said that later, where Yasarian uh, says that he's there, but it's just... Basically, the man's effects are there, and the man is in limbo because of not reporting him to the right places. So it's almost as good as there is a dead man in his tent. Yeah, and then you've also got the the thing that the things in the tent. Only person who really has a right to remove the things from the tent is Yasarian, but he doesn't have any right at all. He doesn't have any right at all. So arguably, he should have a right because it's in his tent, and he was the squadron leader, not squadron leader, the captain. Captain, yeah, squad squad captain. No, he was one of the squadron leaders. Anyway, it was confusing. But yeah, what a mess. <laughs> so yes, I'm curious to see what happens in the next uh, chapter. That one was a little more uh, confusing than most uh, yeah. usual. The next chapter is called Wintergreen. So we learn a little bit about XPFC Wintergreen finally. Yes, and Wintergreen we know is a bit of a... Yeah, he, a bit... he likes to play games. Yeah, he's a bit. He likes to be clever. He likes to point out issues and flaws and criticize uh, excessively loquacious uh, and faffing about communication. And at the same time, well, if if the army, if you stuff up, the army says, da, 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 "I have to shoot you." But why? Because you're disobeying. Even though I'm right, yeah. Even if you're right, like what? Oh well, my favorite part of that exchange was you'll take their side. Hey, was it when it comes to shooting you? Whose side do you think I'm gonna be? <laughs> yeah, far out. Oh, it'll be interesting. If, but but you know, even in the writing style, yeah, especially this last chapter, it's all mess. That that that's the prevailing yeah. theme. And also, you can't keep track of who is alive and who is dead, and and what's happened. Like it's really hard. I'm looking forward to when we're done with this to actually see the timeline chronologically. This happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. Okay. I wonder if that is like maybe a a reflection of what it's like being on the ground. Is it where you like every day a new mission or you got downtime, but it feels like limbo because you're waiting for the next mission and you're just trying to keep your sanity. And there's all these other people that are dealing with all their problems and Hmm. It, yeah, it, we'll fe- it feels like time would be a very strange thing in the middle of a war. Yeah, far out. Be interesting. I, yeah, it's, it is. As we've said it before, it just feels chaotic and all over the place and odd. Um, but yeah, it does feel like that would be what it would, it all blurs and blends, and you can't keep track of what's happening. I love the CID interaction; that was great. Um, <laughs> I just saw yes. a man in pajamas jump into your room. What was that about? Oh, they were talking about da da. Oh, <laughs> I just saw someone leave your thing. Who was that? It's like oh, and, they're talking about it. And the that little section though that was written so differently, where 
once the second CID man said he's going to the hospital, there were like these time jumps from paragraph to paragraph like, about his, his journey along the way to the hospital and what was happening to him. But it connected back to the fact, to, to the Danica chapter, where mm. Danica was discussed, like where we were discussing how that system works kind mm. of thing. Yeah, because it brought up Des and Wes. Mm-mm-mm. Uh, but yes. Any final thoughts? Uh, my final thoughts would be that Wow, possibly the most confusing chapter aside from the first two, three. But it still had enough of the odd kind of quirky humor and strange, like just the, the futility, like just the, but why? And, and I definitely really felt empathy for and sympathy for Major Major. I, I do. And then at the same time, I, and I can also see why he just went, okay, yeah, I'm not talking to anyone. Because initially we were like going, why does everyone, why does Major Major just keep not talking to him? I was like, okay, now we know why he doesn't talk to anyone because they did him a dirty. He's basically finally given up. Yeah. Which is sad because he's broken. Poor Major, 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 Major. You have to, yeah, I, I mean... You'd have to wonder about how all these characters, the ones who survive, how they would, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, how, how they would adapt to civilian life after the war is over. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be, I think that, well, whether any of them get to see civilian life is the other question. Well, yeah, we don't know how many of these folks, if any of them will make it out of the book. Yeah, we'll see. <sighs> but on well, that note... <laughs> yes uh thank you for sticking with us folks uh, we hope you enjoyed that the music at the top of the podcast was soap runs that's by rupert gregson williams and harry gregson williams that's from the 2019 adaptation of catch 22 and at the end of the podcast is i'm the slime by frank zappa you can find me over on twitter at dave underscore the underscore turnip you can find me at rumic on twitter and you can find our podcast on SMBSLT Podcast. That's both on Twitter and on Facebook. And if you add an at gmail.com, you get our email address. And we welcome any messages that give us feedback, ideas, book suggestions, sharing how the podcast features in your life. Anything, really. Mm, yeah, to tell us where you're listening from. What do you do while you're listening? I'm just having a moment of I'm hoping we're not going to get a whole pile of messages saying, hi, I can't, I am a regular listener and your podcast connection doesn't work for me this week. (laughs) But, but you know, that's still uh, needed to know. Yes, we we still need to know. If anything ever happens, please let us know. And yes. And on that point, uh, we hope you have a good week. Yeah. uh, Happy reading all. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Okay. We'll